0: above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power
1: frequency. Good afternoon and welcome to WORT's Community Conversation of Public Affair. I'm Bert Zipperer, your host today, and I'm substituting for Ellen Ruff, who is unable to be here today. You've likely heard of the dugout canoe built 1,200 years ago, which was found and recovered from Lake Mendota last year. And now the second dugout canoe has been recovered just two weeks ago, with this one being 3,000 years old. Today we bring you two guests who are intimately part of that story. I'd like to welcome uh, Tamara Thompson, the Maritime Archaeologist for the Wisconsin State Historical Society. Welcome, Tamara.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And also, and and you found the canoe, but you found both of the canoes, so without you there's no story here. (laughs) Um, And also I'd like to welcome Amy Roseborough, the Assistant State Archaeologist. Amy, welcome. Thank you. So I would like to put this in context and then turn it over to you. Um, So the latest canoe was built in about 1000 BCE, as I understand it. So at that time, King David is the current leader of Israel. The earliest known settlement in Plymouth, England is, is going on. The first evidence of written Aramaic language, Iron Age is starting. The Assyrians are a current empire. It's t- 1,700 years before Cahokia, which is in Illinois for our listeners. Effigy mounds have not even begun to be built. And the earliest ancestors of the Ho-Chunk people are living in this area. So could you talk about sort of the context of that time here on the on the shores of Lake Mendota?
3: It's a, a time on, on the verge of great change. These are the waning decades and, and centuries of what we call the late archaic period. So these are the, the last gasps of a hunting and gathering lifestyle in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So squash has arrived. So the very first plant, squash and gourds to be planted by humans in Wisconsin are starting to be grown here. People are managing the landscape with fire in order to to maintain a open oak savanna and prairie scenario, which is very good for deer and for not bearing trees, but otherwise the shores of the lakes in warmer weather, fishing, gathering wild fowl, wild rice, cattail roots, and then heading at this time of year, they'd be probably breaking up into smaller groups and heading up into the uplands to start harvesting hazel and hickory nuts, some acorns and some walnuts and getting ready for the winter. No mounds have been built yet, not even the first pottery has not arrived, so all cooking is going to be doing with stone boiling and barbecue. So no porridges wow. yet. Wow! So the the what we would consider a settled agricultural lifestyle is still centuries down the line. Wow!
1: And they create this dugout canoe. Can you just describe this canoe that they built?
2: So the the canoe is um, a. Just short of 15 feet long, it's made of white oak, uh, the same materials that, uh, that the 1,200-year-old canoe was made of as well. Um, and um, they felled this using fire, and, um, and they constructed it by um, putting grease inside, starting fires, and scraping with stone tools. So we can see some of those uh, scrape marks um, even inside the canoe. Uh, when we look at it today,
1: wow! And now, the recovery of this was done in partnership with Ho Chunk Nation and the Bad River Ojibwe.
2: Yes, and they uh, they were they were present for the for the recovery, and um, and many members of of both uh, nations came and uh, helped to clean the canoe at the state archives and preservation facility here in Madison.
1: Now, I, I found a quote by Marlon White Eagle, the Ho Chunk president, that I just want to read. Every person that harvested and constructed this kashagegu, or a white oak, into a canoe, put a piece of themselves into it. By preserving this canoe, we are honoring those who came before us." Such a profound thing that you're part of. Yeah. So, so you are, Tamara, describe, you were talking about what you saw, Well first of all, when you're scuba diving in Lake Mendota over there by Shorewood, yeah. um, you just what, what can you see? What time of year?
2: So, um, so we prefer to dive there in the early spring and very late fall. Um, there are some windows of um, clarity in the lake, um, so you can see maybe thirty or forty feet um, during those periods. And one of those is. Um, May through sort of the middle of June that it tends to occur. Um, so, you know, because I teach scuba here in Madison, it's nice to be able to dive right in our backyard and not have to travel far away to do it. Um, and so uh, the the boathouse at McKenna Park in Shorewood is a very popular place. It's easy access to the lake and um, it. Slopes right off, um, you know, from being waist-deep water all the way down to about 16 feet. And um, then you encounter a wall, which is a steep slope that goes down to 35. And um, there's a lot of fish that hang out along that wall, um, as well as uh, fishermen who deposit some trash. There tends to be beer cans and other things that are along there. And, um, and so we uh, like to swim along that wall, look at the fish, and then also pick up any trash that's left behind. So when I was, uh, was swimming along, I had a student with me. He was uh, trying to get certified on a new piece of diving equipment, so we needed to put about 10 hours underwater on it. Um, his name's Casey uh, Klaus. He's from the Chicago suburbs, and um, we were swimming along the wall, and um, there it was sticking out from the sand. It's probably about the size of my fist. Um, just a little piece of the upslope end of the canoe uh, was protruding from the silt. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I thought, oh my gosh, there's another one. And uh, <laughs> so, how
1: how can you tell that's a canoe? What 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 do you yeah. see?
2: So. Back in uh, 2018, we had a student that came to us from the university named Ryan Smazel. He was looking for a uh, senior thesis project in maritime. He wants something. And so spent a couple weeks looking through our files to determine what interested him. And we settled on dugout canoes and collections around the state to be able to look at stylistic differences and anything that we could do as far as comparative analysis. And um we thought that there were 11. (laughs) turns out there's more than 40 once we started. So so more than than 40
1: canoes have been found in the waters of Wisconsin.
2: Yeah, or just donated flat out um, Uh to the collections. So some of them were, um, you know, still in use and donated. Uh, They had not been, you know, cached or recovered from underwater necessarily. But uh, so I've looked at a lot of these. Um, We went, we obviously went around with them. It was a big project for senior thesis and for, um, and for one person to handle. So, um, a lot of these, we, we visited with him, taught him the techniques for recordation and, um, and we, uh, he published his, uh, his paper and, um, and it's sort of, we then transitioned to COVID times where he didn't get to all of them and we really wanted a comprehensive look. So his, um, his, uh, the professor that was uh, leading him through the project, his advisor, uh, Dr. Dr. Cecil Schrader, um, from the UW Anthropology Department, suggested that we try to finish it up and clean up the uh, the data a little bit. And um, that's when we started discovering quite a few more canoes that we had missed. Um, and um, and really, this. You know, not not necessarily just a timeline uh, but across time but across space as well so there are differences between where these canoes are located or were found or located um, as far as wood types and how they were used and how they're constructed and of course some of that also changes across time so we're we're I've spent a lot of time looking at canoes so I did know in various st- stages of repair or disrepair so um, so I kind of knew what I was looking for I was like oh my gosh there's another one so
1: you so. <laughs> You are, thankfully, a canoe (laughs) expert.
2: Yeah. uh, (laughs) Unexpectedly, yes. I usually study shipwrecks, but um, yeah, canoes apparently are my thing.
1: Wow. (laughs) Well, I want to invite our callers to call in with your questions, comments, thoughts at 608-256-2001, extension 9, and we'll put you on the air here with Tamara Thompson, Maritime Art maritime archaeologist for the state of Wisconsin and Amy Rosebro the assistant state super assistant state um archaeologist. Amy, what does this do for for uh, what's the significance of this? This this is so <laughs> profound. I'm not even sure how to put it in words.
3: Uh, well if if you think about trying to reconstruct the past and we rely a lot on written records but when you're you're discussing something before the 1650s in wisconsin those written records don't exist the ho-chunk and the native peoples have their own oral traditions uh which they don't always share with non-native folks which is their right but so much of history is never recorded not in oral history not in the written record and trying to reconstruct it with archaeology is you're digging through trash and things that have been lost things that have been forgotten so it's like having a book ripping pages out and scattering them in a landscape burning some of them you know tearing tearing pages into smaller pieces and strewing them to the wind and us archaeologists have to come along you know long after and look for tiny little fragments of paper and yeah. assemble it into some sort of coherent whole so we knew that people have been using stone tools that look like canoe making tools for 10,000 something years. We understand that they're obviously traveling long distances. In this period, the trade routes extend from Wisconsin out onto the Great Plains to the area of Yellowstone and the Rocky Mountains. They go north of the Great Lakes. They're on the Atlantic Coast and the Gulf Coast. And people are not going to do that on foot, especially hauling cargo. So we've always assumed there have to be canoes, Mm -hmm. but we have no actual canoes. Occasional rock art showing people in what seemed to be canoes, but to have the actual item, to be able to look at it and say, this is the thing. This proves that we were guessing correctly with the tools, with our inferences. And this is what it looks like. And now it opens up whole other areas of study. You know, how much can it carry? How was it used? Are they different on inland lakes um, as opposed to the larger rivers? Is this a cargo canoe, a fishing canoe? Is this somebody's recreational? Is this the equivalent of just a little paddleboard for going out and having fun? How is it used? How does it wear? What is its lifespan? Like, how was it made so many questions now?
1: That is fascinating. So, um, Tamara and Amy, we are talking about the 3000 year old canoe just discovered in Lake Mendota, just recovered. And we have Devin on the line wanting to talk about the time period of the recovered canoes. Devin, welcome to WRT.
0: Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, my, qu- my question is, um, so, um, of course, 3000 years, the ice age is long gone. and, uh, I just don't have a historical understanding of what, uh, what, where the ice age was at, and also um, what other, how this, uh, the group that created this, how are they related to the Ho Chunk and Ojibwe people of today, and uh, are they completely lost? Is it like just we, we don't know who they are, or um, do, do the do the Native people have any idea on that, or there other uh, artifacts that that come from that era that kind of set the state that where the canoes kind of fit that puzzle of time period. So just in terms of starting the ice, so it's really two or three questions, ice age, <laughs> long gone, right? There's no more ice.
1: <laughs> so, Correct. Uh, so uh, I'll turn it over to Amy and Tamara.
3: Sure. So yeah, the ice age is definitely long since gone. Uh, so if you imagine, the glacial period you know 14,000 years ago so it began it's very very cold and it begins to warm up the ice melts back to the north the climate approaches normal and then it actually gets hotter so it approaches a period we call the hypsothermal around uh, five six thousand years ago which is kind of a peak temperature so that's when wisconsin's oak savannas and prairies moved in naturally and then it started to cool down again so it's the slope towards the next round of glacial advance is where we should be heading. And of course, humans are having a little something to say about that. So it conditions should have approached what they are now, the spread of deciduous forests. But the people living in Wisconsin had other things to say about that. They like the prairies. They like the oak savannas because they host huge herds of game, elk and deer, uh, the, again, the nut-bearing trees, turkey. So they began setting fires to maintain a warmer type of landscape in a cooler environment. And this is where Lake Mendota is at that time. As for the people themselves, think of many small groups, maybe 50 people at the largest. It's what archaeologists and anthropologists call a band level society. In other words, the environment is not going to maintain that many more people in the same place without the invention of agriculture and other methods. That said, it's a very, very productive landscape. So they're moving around. Probably the Four Lakes area and possibly a little wider a field, but not going too much further. Uh, the relationship to the modern Ho-Chunk, that's a little harder to get at. And that you have to ask the Ho-Chunk and the Ojibwe and the other groups. The Ho-Chunk trace their, their line right back to the ice. So 14,000 something years in southern Wisconsin. Their oral old histories talk about the retreat of the ice, about a very cold landscape, about the creation of the Wisconsin Dells and the glacial fro- floods. Other Native nations uh, have claims to Wisconsin. They have a history here as well. Uh, But the Ho-Chunk are the ones who say, okay, this land in particular is our land. And they do have oral history centering specifically on the Four Lakes area that go deep into the past.
1: And and the Ojibwe have a history on the East Coast at that point, as I understand it.
3: They they Say that their their population has moved back and forth. Okay. Uh, from the written records, there are accounts of which were moving back into Wisconsin in the 1600s uh, due to some of the turmoil happening on the East Coast at that point. But that's not to say they weren't here previously either.
1: Good point. Devin, any follow up questions?
0: I, w- I wanted to ask about birch bark in particular because I think birch bark is all kinds of canoe methods and materials, but uh, is birch bark? You say it was oak they were made of, and uh, but I just kind of curious where birch bark fits into the whole Wisconsin network of canoe production.
2: Yes, so we see a a lot more birch bark production up north, um, but our particular study was uh, focused on um, log boats, so log canoes, dugout canoes, Um, and we look for um, differences in wood type. We know from looking at the various canoes and co- collections that um, there are five different wood types that are used uh, throughout time. But most prominently here in the southern uh, part of Wisconsin, they were choosing and using white oak. So um, it's been said that if you know the well, the uh, the birch bark canoes are a finer line. They're a little bit um, you know. A, uh, more uh, there's a little bit more craftsmanship involved with them, but it was said that if you were going to choose to use a birch bark canoe, you would have to invest in patching it and repairing it after almost every use. So um, you would you know be tarring this up and uh, patching <laughs> where it leaked and so on. So um, so although it was it was you know a great a great, uh, a great uh, tools for them to be able to use uh, for transportation. um there there were um, positives and negatives with both the the birch bark and with the the dugout canoes. But we see them a lot more prominently um, in the northern uh, regions
1: so can can you talk about the process of this white oak that's standing there taking that to a canoe, the time, the number of people, the work. Can you describe that creation of this canoe?
3: Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> uh, sh- sh- boy, yeah. I would imagine trying to take down an old-growth oak with a stone axe. Mm-hmm. So this is not, you know, a modern steel axe with a bit that's easily resharpened and it's going to hold an edge for a long time. I've heard it described as battering a tree to death. So you can imagine a situation in which people would girdle a tree let it start to die out naturally It'll come back after a couple of years. And then they would probably use fire, build fire around the base of that tree to burn through the trunk and, and fell it and take off the branches. In other words, let fire do most of the work for them. After that, it's a matter of stripping the bark off with stone tools. You would place grease in areas where you want fire. You would wet down areas where you don't want fire. And again, let the fire do the work. Let it char out the wood, come in with stone adzes scrape the chart out, and then just repeat the process over and over again. Uh, One thing that's really impressed me about, you know, these canoes is the thinness of it. Mm. You know, this newest canoe is an inch in some cases a little less on the bottom and there are no calipers, you know, at this point, you're not using high end tools. So my guess is they are probably doing this purely by sound just Mm. by knocking on it and listening and knowing what, you know, sound and what hollowness sounds like to what thickness
2: and there's still evidence on both canoes of charring and and scraping both so um you can see exactly how they constructed it <laughs>
1: so this is a real community process of uh, this isn't just one person deciding i'm going to build m- myself a canoe this is a community building it sounds like to me
3: and something that takes a lot of, of knowledge as well yes. and this isn't something you just decide to do uh, we've had archaeologists attempt it as a kind of a experimentation and, you know, they're finding out things like, oh, if you don't let the wood season enough, your entire canoe twists itself into a knot wow. and cracks and splits. You know, so, you know, Bill Quackenbush, uh, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer with the Ho-Chunk, took a replica canoe through the Great Lakes and it was extremely well done. So, you know, I will say he's a very skilled canoe builder.
1: And he's been on this program before and he's a delight. Um I want to invite callers to call in because currently you're listeners and we're asking you to call in. So 608-256-2001, extension 9. Questions for Tamara Thompson and Amy Rosebro regarding the recent discoveries of amazingly old canoes, dugout canoes right here in Lake Mendota. Um, so you're going along. You see this piece of canoe sticking out from a, a shelf of some sort about the size of a fist. Mm-hmm. So what happens yeah. after that? How do you get it out? It's for, there's there's another 14 yeah. feet of canoe waiting there behind you.
2: Yeah, well it started by seeing if it was actually the whole canoe. So um, I fanned along the edges and uh, worked my way down and it did turn out to be an entire canoe. Um, we uh, went back to my house and grabbed a tape measure and a GoPro camera and took uh, imagery and um, details of, um, of what the site looked like and, um, and then I covered it back up. Um, so at this point then the decisions uh, went above our heads. Um, they went through the state archaeologist Jim Skibo. Um, to all the way up to um, the director of the Historical Society, Christian Overland. And um, the tribes were brought in on um, the process as well, um, discussing you know, whether they thought it was valuable to, um, to recover this canoe and, um, and uh, what they thought. And in, in the meantime, of, in the process of all of this, we also took a wood sample and that was sent in for the radiocarbon dating. Um, Jim had found a new source for uh, for doing the radiocarbon dating and sent it in, and um, we'd sent it with a couple other um, samples, and there were some errors in the other samples, so probably not the lab's fault, but, um, you know, there's some things that, you know, if you're collecting in an area that was a lot of pollution or it's near a nuclear power plant or something, that's going to affect the process, and um, uh, so, when the other errors came back and then this one was so way out there with 3000 years, I was like, yeah, you know, you might want to find out how he did this. And so, you know, see if his calibration was off or something. And um, so Jim called him right back up and he volunteered to run it again. He came up with the same results. And, you know, just to be thorough, we sent it to a different lab to make sure that the date was, was correct. Um, so yeah. So then it was, how do we go about doing it? And uh, we just decided to, learn from our mistakes and, um, you know, what we had learned in bringing up the, the less fragile 1,200-year-old canoe, uh, when we're bringing up the 3,000-year-old uh, canoe, and uh, we kind of put things into place uh, to, to be able to do the recovery. And it took a little over a week to hand-excavate it. Um, some of the things we, we learned, uh, we, we repeated um, because they worked, and some of the things that didn't work, we tried to fix. Um, so you'll see... In the pictures, uh, differences in floating it to the beach, we, you know, again, we, we hand excavated rather than uh, use an airlift dredge uh, because it was so much more fragile. Uh, we lifted it, we excavated onto the canoe, onto a piece of plastic, um, and then lifted it um, from, with the plastic to come up. And then we put air mattresses underneath it and floated it back to shore. We made almost a raft um that uh that it could uh, ride back to shore on so it wouldn't have to be dragged underwater so um yeah our uh, all to a credit of our our volunteer team we have a number of uh, guys that volunteer for us throughout the years year mostly working on shipwreck projects so in the great lakes and um they were very happy to come out and help us i know imagine that um <laughs> and um and uh the, we we were able to get it to shore luckily and thankfully and um again the the ho-chunk were involved with the process um they commented all along uh as to you know what our plans and decision making were and then they were present um on a pontoon boat as we brought it up and brought it into shore. So that was pretty cool. Um, the the alumni boat that they were on broke the waves. There were some waves that picked up as we were coming in, and um, and so the boat was positioned just so that it would break the waves and uh, the canoe wouldn't be wouldn't be affected by it. So um, er, you know, all hands helped. So it was it was pretty great.
1: So I I want to talk about the preservation of the canoe, but first we have a listener, Chuck, who asks this question: Do the researchers have any sense? of if the recovered canoes were lost, for example, in a storm, or were they possibly discarded because they were at the end of their use? What's the setting there? What's your belief?
2: Either one of us, I can go. Um, (laughs) So it was very common for uh, for canoes to be left on the, dugout canoes anyway, to be left on the waterway. They were not meant to be portable. So when the people uh, moved seasonally, um, the canoes were oftentimes cached. And so they were brought up um, into shallow water, but left underwater um, so that they would waterlog. And that uh, by dragging them up on a beach or leaving them ashore, they would dry out over the winter and and crack. So it was very common practice to pull them up onto onto a shoreline, maybe in waist deep to chest deep water, and then um, bury them with sediment or stack rocks on top of them so that they would remain in place over the winter months or whenever they were away. And then when they would come back in the spring or when the hunting seasons changed, um, then they would recover the canoe and then refloat it. And, um, and we know that these canoes float uh, still. <laughs> So, because we we put them in the conservation tank um, until you filled them with water and tried to push them down, they they still really, really? wanted to. Yeah, float they, on the they surface. They just want to float. Yeah, that's great. We shouldn't have been surprised, but we were surprised. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a common practice is this, this caching of canoes. So these two canoes are about a thousand feet apart. Neither of them were intentionally found. So we never looked in this area for them. I just stumbled across them accidentally. And so our next plans going forward are to look for other canoes that, um, that are cached in this area. So this is probably a common area. It's near some village sites um, that we know that are on the, the uplands from here. Um, but in 24 feet of water where they're all located on this slope, um, we can really surmise that the shoreline must have been or the, the water level must have been a lot lower and the shoreline must have been a lot further out than it is today in order for this to be a cache site. Because no one would cache their canoe intentionally in 24 feet of water um, and expect to recover it.
1: So talk talk about what what Lake Mendota was like at that point.
3: So at at that time, uh, different than the lake we see today. If you look at the earliest European accounts of the lake, they talk about how clear it is. How lovely and clear with a white sand bottom. And that, of course, is not the lake we have today so the lake we have has suffered immensely uh, if you looked at the sediment column there is a layer of dark black kind of ooze and goo that's the top soil from the prairies that was eroded off when the land was broken for cultivation as european colonists and settlers moved into the region the lake levels we did not think had gone up and down that much but the problem was over the past you know a couple of decades every so often someone would come into our office with a spear point that they had found along the beach, Tenney Park, Picnic Point, all along the south shore of the lake. And these were all from around the same time as uh, this newest canoe, 3,000 years ago. And all of these artifacts were very heavily polished and tumbled. By the water. They'd obviously been rolling back and forth in the surf and the shore for a long time. And that had confused us. We thought, okay, this seems to imply that the levels were much, much lower at one point, which is something, of course, we have no record of. And so we think that, yeah, there may have been droughts. We would expect lake levels to be much, or lake levels to be much, much lower during that period of peak temperature i mentioned a while back five to six thousand years ago but i think everyone would have assumed it would have gone back to normal by three so we may be looking at periodic very severe droughts and you know if those happened in the past of course that's something that could happen again if lake Yahara or if lake yajara if the Yahara river sources dry up and the river dries up then there's nothing feeding the lakes and they're just going to straight up evaporate and that may be what happened in the past. We may be looking at some very low water levels and some kind of rough environmental conditions off and on in the past.
1: And, and what we know is the Yahara River connecting Lakes Mendota and Monona was channelized by European um, yep. folks here. That was actually more of a marshland between the two lakes?
3: Yeah, so all four lakes were originally one great big lake. So right. as the glaciers were receding, they were a, a single glacial lake called Glacial Lake Yahara. Mm-hmm. And that lake has then evaporated partly away, leaving just the deep spots full of water, so where we get our four lakes today. And when we have significant rain events and floods, as we did you know, a few years back, that old lake bed becomes a lake bed again, because those marshlands have been developed and paved over and you know the environment's changed so much that it just can't handle that anymore. But the lake remembers where its old shorelines were, and it tends to refill in those times. So we may just be looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. The river shuts off. The lakes really evaporate away again.
1: So you're thinking that there might be a village site there near where the canoes were found underwater.
3: It's one theory. Mm-hmm. It is one theory. You know, so we have try and work with multiple hypotheses for one. So that that could be one reason. Uh, these this could be sheer chance. It could be that so many canoes have been lost in the lake that the entire lake is ringed with them, in which case we need to send Tammy out some more. <laughs> uh, so I mean, that's that's one of the amazing things is when we had one canoe, you could come up with a bunch of stories. Now we have two, we have to come up with different stories.
1: Right, right. So I'm inviting you listeners to join the conversation with Tamara Thompson and Amy Rosebrough. We're talking about the discovery of the 3000 year old canoe Following the 1200 year canoe, your 1200 year old canoe. So call 608 256 2001, extension nine. Extension nine. Um, extension nine. I'm supposed to recall, re- remind you. Um, so the, the the setting in Madison is quite different back in those days, too. Um, I'm going to go off on a little tangent. There's a, a, a dividing ridge. On Park Street, that no one knows about because it's long gone. Can you describe <laughs> this huge bluff that?
3: Oh, sure. Yeah, that is uh, one of Madison's great losses. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, it was a very, very large. So think of Bascom Hill, except extending down uh, the stretch of land between Lake Wingra and Lake Minotas around where Park Street runs today. So by the so hospitals. Yep. Yeah, yeah. By the hospitals. So people driving along Park Street are actually about seventy feet under where the original ground surface was at one point. And there were mounds all along that ridge. You know, So it was a massive burial and ceremonial site. And Increase Laugham, one of our early naturalists, said this would be Madison and, in fact, Wisconsin's premier park, if it could be saved. Unfortunately, we had uh, gravel quarries in interest that botched the land and they chewed on it, one at each end, until they met in the middle. And every so often... Our first state archaeologist, Charles E. Brown, would leave the historical Society. he'd walk down and climb up and see what was left, talk to the workers, see what they'd found, and then all he could do was just record it and the manuscripts that we have here in his notes.
1: That's a that's a huge crime. Um but think, thanks for that quick story. I'm going to have you back on for another show. We're going to talk about all about Madison. Um, and I'm inviting you to call 608-256-2001, extension 9, with a question and join Steve, who's on the line right now, who wants to talk about the Ahara River. Welcome, Steve.
3: Yeah, uh, Bert, this is, a, this is a great show. Uh, thanks, hello, Tammy and Amy. Um, my question may have been answered in part while I was waiting here. But it is as follows. At the time of the canoe's construction, before contemporary causeways and dams, was the Ahara River a continuous and navigable stream? Also, were these conveyances for uh, the convenience of passengers only, or was there a uh, incipient economy requiring the movement of small bulk cargoes? Thank you.
1: Thanks for that question, Steve.
3: Oh, sure. Well, the, the answer... To your first question is, yes, it was definitely a navigable stream. Uh, one of great interest to the native peoples we have, for example, fish weirs along the O'Hara south of Madison uh, that were in use for a very long period of time, definitely into the historic period and used by Ho-Chunk. Uh, so this is a travel route. Of course, the O'Hara drains into the rock, which drains into the Mississippi River and down to the Gulf Coast. So it, it's actually a major trade and travel route. Uh, And one of the reasons that the Madison area is so important the overland route, the trail system that we know of comes from the area of Prairie de Chinois, Lusing state park where the Wisconsin meets the Mississippi comes over cuts to the four lakes, Madison area, and then goes straight north to the great portage, which then of course can take you to the Atlantic through the great lakes themselves. So this is a pretty significant transportation point. And as as far as the bulk cargoes go, yeah, there's definitely a trade going on at this time from material, uh, marine shell, tool stones, copper, uh, all from all across the eastern half of the United States. So we're assuming that there should be bulk transport canoes out there someplace, just given the material that's moving around. We don't think these canoes are bulk transport canoes, however. Because they're smaller? Tammy,
2: do you want to take that one? Yeah. So um, on the riverways, we uh, Mississippi River in particular, we expect to see much, much larger canoes. We have evidence of a portion of one of those canoes, which is at Villa Louis, and we were happening to the state historic site that's out in Prairie du Chien. And um, Amy and I were just there a couple of days ago looking at that one. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's just a portion of of that uh, of that canoe, but it's massive so i mean almost i think in if it had been uh is in its entirety we're looking at 25 feet long so so much much longer and much wider so these canoes that are on our lakes here are um are uh they would have been used sort of like um i don't know maybe stand-up paddle boards were are today they would have either knelt um in them and paddled or they would have uh, had their legs over the sides and um keeping them a little more stable for fishing. they're maybe about a foot and a half wide at most. So you can imagine the core strength on the guy that was, uh, that was manipulating that craft. Yeah. Um, But we see also differences in, um, in other canoes um, that we've found throughout the state. We have um, one that's um, that was discovered up in the Toma area. Um, And, um, and it was uh, it, it, at um, a waterway that fed a a cranberry bog. And we see that 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 one is compartmentalized and much, much smaller. So very specific use for that may have been um, either harvesting cranberries or also harvesting uh, wild rice. So um, so we see these differences uh, throughout the state and for the uses of the canoes.
1: So interesting. So you were talking about the importance of this spot here, what we know as Madison. in the transportation network. If you go down the Rock River to the Mississippi, I know this is a little bit later, not in 1000 BC, but now we're talking about Cahokia. And mm-hmm. and for our listeners, could you just describe Cahokia very briefly, Amy?
3: Oh, Cahokia. Uh, it's an amazing place. Uh, it's World Heritage site now, and I really encourage anybody who's heading in the St. Louis area to, to stop by and take a look. Cokia I've, I've, I've was been the clo- there. You're right. Koki <laughs> was the closest thing that North America had to a city at the point. It was home to at least 10,000 people or more, you know, and if, again, this is an agricultural society, imagine the effort, the infrastructure in place to maintain just a downtown Koki 10,000 people in one place of, I mean, that region would have been hunted out almost immediately. So, of course, they're drawing from a very, very wide hinterland to support this, this new civilization that's emerging. And they were sending colonists and traders north. So Astelland State Park here in Wisconsin is a Kokian offshoot, or they settled in with our, our local effigy builders and did something new and tried to turn the, the site into a tiny little version of Kokia with some success. And then they they another one uh, the, the the second colony that very few people know about in modern Tremplo, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So Tremplo is actually sitting on the village and then the ceremonial mounds are up above and now open to the public with a, a neutral and interpretive sign system.
1: And and they, they were they created platform mounds of 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 huge significance, right?
3: Yeah, so so these are kind of Think of them as flat-topped pyramids. Uh, they're all green and overgrown with grass now, but they probably would have been uh, faced with very brightly colored clays and sediments at the time. Uh, really stood out. Uh, often arranged around a plaza, so a ceremonial area where people could have held dances and gatherings and also played a game called Chunky, so Wisconsin's <laughs> original sport before the Packers. Oh, and oh, they there's were so trading you know, anything they could send south to Cahokia. Uh, they probably were, so... Up here, because of that oak savanna, because the people were maintaining the prairie so well, the deer herds would have been massive, and that's one theory as to why the Kokians came here: is they're looking for a source for for leather, for for clothing, winter clothing, and uh, for food as well.
1: Wow! So, um, listeners, we've got about twelve more minutes for you to enter the conversation here at six oh eight. 2562001 extension 9 with Tamara Thompson and Amy Roseborough. we're talking about the incredible discoveries of the 3000-year-old canoe this year and the 1200-year-old canoe last year. Let's talk about preservation. I grew up in northeastern Wisconsin and as a middle school student a two-masted schooner the Elvin Clark was discovered in the Bay of Green Bay. It was raised up, it floated, it was it still was working. And within a decade or so, it was a pile of dust. Um, the, the Federal Act of 1987, I believe, mm-hmm. on abandoned shipwrecks to preserve and protect things underwater happens. And now you've got this canoe and you're gonna try to keep it from becoming a pile of dust. Just talk yeah. about
2: that. Yeah, so we, we, learned, we do learn from our mistakes, don't we? So um, yeah, the Alvin Clark, it was a, it was a good idea. Um, you know, I mean, at the time, uh, it, what a what a feat for these uh, very early scuba divers in the late 1960s to excavate the entire site. Um, they very carefully sucked all of the mud out of the out of the shipwreck. I believe it was in over 100 feet of water um, in Green Bay. So, I mean, that feat in itself was remarkable. And then they uh, kept intact everything that. Uh, that was taken in a, uh, or taken along, and sail, sail, sailors would have taken on them with the ship in a civil era, a pre-civil, civil war era ship. Um, so we get this sort of glimpse into what shipboard life would have been, which is pretty cool. Um, and if that's a success, you know, we, we can we can claim that. The failure was is that um, there wasn't really a plan for preservation so it was always thought that when they brought it up the money would come and there were some errors in thought I believe that that happened one was taking it to uh, to uh, uh, Menominee Michigan which is where it was set up as sort of a sideshow uh, park you could buy tickets and come and um, and tour the boat and everything was functional and you could see everything that would have been um, aboard and what shipboard life would have been like but, um, but the money never came. And, um, and so very slowly, um, even though they tried various techniques to uh, keep the wood from rotting, it, uh, we see over you know, about a 10 or 15-year period, it's starting to flake um, and dry rot and twist and, to a point where um, there was no turning back. And, um, and they uh, ended up bulldozing the ship. And um, and we lost that resource. Whereas if it had been left alone on the bottom, uh, it would have been uh, still there to die and pro- dive and probably a, an amazing uh, dive site and tourist attraction for divers coming from all over the world.
1: And that was an but, era of, of private yeah. people being able to go down and pick up stuff and just try to make money off of it. Today, yeah. the State of Circle Society, in partnership with uh, the Native Nations, has this. What do you do to preserve 3,000-year-old wood?
2: yeah so um well you uh there's a there's a process and there are people that study this um the main group of people that are studying it are from the netherlands at this point and we have several american groups of consultants that that are consulting on this project that um that have studied with them and and um, experimented on other canoes um so we think we have a good plan our consultant is from maryland and uh maryland shippo the state historic preservation office there and they do bring up quite a few canoes and they're displayed um across their state um and so in the same age range so our plan is to right now it's in um purified water and um we're running a uv filter on it there's like a kind of a pool filtration device and um that's going to uh, remove any um invasive species that came in with it we also cleaned it uh, before we put it in the tank Um, but it will also um you know anything that's uh that's algae that's growing on it um, or will continue to grow in the water that'll be taken off Um, we're in a supply chain crunch right now trying to find polyethylene glycol Um, that is what you use to bulk wood so what right now, all of the cells all, within the structure of the wood is completely filled with water.
1: So water is the only thing holding this cell structure well, together. of the whole thing.
2: Some cellular structure to it, it's wow. hard to th- uh, but uh, but not much. And um, once you remove the water, there's going to be nothing there. So you have to put something in its place. And so polyethylene glycol is, the, is what we use and it's in a flake form. And we've had that on order since the other canoe came up, um, but we keep having back-ordered situations with it. Um, It supposedly is on a boat. We don't know. Um, But uh, we're hoping that we get that soon. But, you know, as fate would have it, we didn't start the process for the 1,200-year-old canoe because we didn't have this polyethylene glycol. So now we get two for one because we can do the 3000 year old at the same time. So polyethylene glycol is sort of a waxy substance. It displaces the water in the wood. We bring it down to like 40 or 50% hydration um, with replacement and then it will be taken to a freeze dryer. Right now, the only freeze dryer that's big enough for at least the 12, 000, a 1,200-year-old canoe is, um, is in Texas, so that canoe will be shipped to, to Texas. The 3,000-year-old canoe, although most of it is there, um, is fragmentary, so we may have a little bit more luck finding something locally where we can remove the rest of the water by freeze drying.
1: I'm, I'm thinking, I grew up in a small cheese factory, one of our old cheese vets might work really well too just just a thought
2: <laughs> and and
1: you you've you've worked with the zipper family before because randy wallander who helped bring this up is my first cousin yeah so,
2: we love randy so yeah. he's so instrumental in helping us remove the the 1200 year old canoe last year yeah, so, I, I know he's yeah.
1: he's used to picking up uh, snowmobiles from the from the floors of, of <laughs> lakes so we've got a caller here in the last six minutes uh brian is on the line with a question about mound building culture welcome to wrt brian
0: so thanks so much, and thanks for the marvelous show. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, question, I, I'm wondering what was happening, for example, at, at Aztalon at this time. Was, were the walls up at the time these uh, canoes were operative, uh, and how do they coincide with the, coincide with
3: mound-building activities?
1: That's a great question. So how does Aztalon fit into the timeline here for, for everything?
3: Aztalon's As, newer. So our 3,000-year-old canoe is, is before any of the mountains, uh, long before Cahokia is a thing. The newer canoe, it's, it's weird to say new canoe for mm-hmm. something that's, you know, 800 AD, uh, uh, just predates Astlan. So Cahokia was in its initial stages of forming. It, it hadn't grown into a little city yet, so they hadn't sent colonists north. But the people that would host the Cahokians at Astland, were in the vicinity. They were living at the Astellan and, and probably moving in and out of the site seasonally because they hadn't quite settled down yet at that point. Effigy mounds were a brand new thing at that time. The first ones are just being built. It was not the landscape that we see today just covered in mounds. It was just on the verge of it.
1: So you're talking seven, 800 A.D.?
3: Around 800 A.D. for the for the newer canoe.
1: So Astellan is just on the cusp of being Built, yeah. So um, 900,
3: uh, to a thousand. So you're just about a hundred years, a couple generations.
1: That's just kind of profound just to try to grasp. Wow. <laughs> um, Brian, thanks for that question. Do you have a follow-up question? Are you still there? I guess he's gone. Um, we've just got about four minutes left, Tamara and Amy. Um, what more do we need to know? Uh, what, what didn't we cover? Um, and and what's the lessons for us all? What do we what do we take from this? Because I know we study history to make better decisions for the future. Uh, so so what well, is, what do we get to know? We can
2: talk about? What what comes next? Thanks. Um, yeah. So uh, so in our partnership with the Ho Chunk, we're hoping to be able to go back out when there's uh, fresh black ice, very smooth and um, be able to look through the ice and into the bottom of sediment with ground penetrating radar and, um, and be able to determine if there are indeed other canoes there and that this was a massive cache site. So um, so that's, that's coming up. Hopefully we'll be able to do that yet this winter and we are lucky with the Um, the ice coming on the lake. We need to get get there when there's ice, but no snow. So um, that's going to be our our timeline for looking at that. So there may be other news coming from this, which is
3: pretty exciting. Wow.
1: Amy, what do you have?
3: I'd just say that this is a reminder of the history. You know, when our residents in Madison look at the lakes and residents across Wisconsin look at the landscape, remember, there is a history there. And it's incumbent upon all of us to take care of that. Uh, the the canoe has suffered some damage over the years because the lake itself has deteriorated. But you know it's here and it's allowing us to bring the whole Chunk you know back into a conversation that they're often left out of. So you know anything we can do to remind people that hey they they have things to say. That's the canoe's helping us do that.
1: Absolutely. We had Bill Quackenbush, the tribal preservation officer, on this show a year ago talking about the 1,200 year old canoe. <laughs> And that, that was fascinating and um, yeah, we, we didn't fall out of the blue sky. There, there are people that came before us who did mm-hmm. really amazing things and we benefit from that. I was just up in Manitowoc County, which is Zippererlandia last weekend because all the Zipper relatives show up there about the 1850s. Um, and um, that was a profound weekend with me and my cousin Betty and, and my wife Lori and others. Um, now we're talking 3,000 years, and the profoundness of this is just mind-boggling to me. What, what, what's your emotional thoughts about what what
3: you're part of? I The first one was such a shock, you know, because I studied that era. To have it suddenly, you know, appear in front of me as a tangible thing was amazing. The newest one I'm still grappling with. It's It's so old, it's hard to get a handle on, and... To think of the fact that three thousand years old is still closer to us in time than you know, people have been here for fourteen thousand years. It just brings home how deep the history is in Wisconsin.
1: That's important, Tamara. Any last thoughts?
2: Oh my goodness, I, I'm <laughs> I'm always overwhelmed um, to uh, to spend time with um, with some of the tribal members, and um, and to uh, to hear them talk about this special connection with these objects that we found on their landscape.
1: Well, that's. I want to thank you both for what you do and for being here today. We've, we're have we going to sign off here in just a few seconds. We want to thank Tamara Thompson, maritime archaeologist, and Amy Roseboro, uh, assistant state um, archaeologist, for being here today. I want to thank Chuck, the engineer, who pushes the buttons and makes all this stuff happen over the air. Rochelle, who coordinates all this and who will be leaving us at the end of this week. Thank you, Rochelle. Shali and Alan Ruff, whose show I'm substituting for. Um, I want to thank you both and if you stick around, we'll talk after after the after the news starts, just privately. So thanks everyone and stay tuned for Letters in Politics and the BBC News coming up in just a few moments.